We return to bringing light into darkness with our guest, Basir Vita, as he relates the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan. International media call it an impeding plight, but famine, scarcity of food material already paralyzed the people of Afghanistan and drug addicts in particular. Also, I think it's, uh, to some extent, it's even worse than what Yemen experienced and is still experiencing because of Afghanistan's weather and Afghanistan is a mountainous country and winter already arrived. This crisis is not only a survival catastrophe, but a mental breakdown. We are all Afghans suffer and already have been suffering since four decades ago. Every day I hear the stories of people committing suicide, selling their children or leaving their children on the street. Street robbery skyrocketed. Food materials prices tripled since fall of Kabul. Current regime has no revenue resource except, potentially, selling out the mines like copper mines, drug, and receiving support from neighboring countries, particularly Pakistan and Iran. Mm-hmm. The citizens of Afghanistan should pay for the U.S. sanctions. Neither Taliban nor Pakistan mm-hmm. will pay for it. Also, in October alone, an estimated of 300,000 people from Afghanistan left only for Iran. Many of these refugees are waiting for spring to thaw the mountain passes to Turkey so they can travel on to Europe. So in Afghanistan, this growing economic crisis will feed the illegal drug trade. And experts predict that Afghan farmers will expand illegal drug production as the economy collapses. So the current situation, I believe that was predictable to some extent, but not unpredictable. And the U.S. government only evacuated around 124,000 Afghans. Yeah, that's in a country with some 40 million people. It's a large population. That's right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the estimation says it's around 40 million people. Basir, you've covered some really important territory. And I guess one of the things that's so striking to me is here in the United States, the narrative is shaped in such a way that whatever befalls Afghanistan now is like of their own making, right? And it's not. I mean, we've been very much involved, particularly in the last 20 years. But importantly, our foreign policy has profoundly shaped Afghanistan over the last 40 years, going back to the creation of the Mujahideen. We alluded to the the corruption element in the last 20 years that went on, and it wasn't just U.S. contractors that made a killing. It was also, I'm sure, elements of the Afghan population that made a killing. The result of there being absolutely no significant rebuilding of a country that we have been at war with or war within for the last 20 years. It is interesting, too, that Osama bin Laden, what he was killed back in 2011. So that was ostensibly why we were in Afghanistan. But in, but in fact, obviously, it wasn't because, we, you know, we still were there for another 10 years. The history of Afghanistan that is hidden from the U.S. public by our government and U.S. media, I discovered many years ago and is restated in a recent article by Ph.D. retired professor of geography and senior scholar at the University of Winnipeg in Canada. His name is Dr. John Ryan, and he wrote the article Afghan Tragedy, still relevant today as it was analyzed 15 years ago. 
and I highlight some of his findings because they were consistent with my own. In 1978, a government came to power without outside interference in Afghanistan. It was an outcome of internal politics of a nation. On September 1st of 1978, there was an abolition of all debts owned by farmers, landlords, and moneylenders had charged up to 24% interest on those debts. A program was being developed for major land reform, and it was expected that all farm families, including landlords, would be given the equivalent of equal amounts of land. It affirmed the separation of church and state. Labor unions were legalized. Health care and education became priorities. Women were given equal rights, and girls were to go to school. Child marriages and feudal dowry payments were banned. Dr. John Ryan was physically there at that time in 1978 and indicates there were no opium harvests to be had in Afghanistan, although there was in northwestern Pakistan. This government was popularly supported. At the same time, there were strong Islamic fundamentalist conservatists, and many of the 250,000 mullahs were landlords and were vehemently opposed to the proposed land reforms and other violations of Sharia law. In the mosques, they exhorted the farmers to oppose the government's plans because, according to them, it was only Allah who could grant land to them. It was in such a country with such conservative elements that gave birth to the United States CIA-created Mujahideen and, of course, Osama bin Laden to fight the Soviet Union throughout the 1980s. The Mujahideen was later defeated by the Taliban and relegated to northern Afghanistan. It was in 2001 that they were recruited by the United States as allies and renamed the Northern Alliance. The Taliban appeared in 1994, a creation of the Madrasa religious schools in Pakistan, and their creation had the support of the United States of America. So the United States was behind the scenes and largely created and enabled the Mujahideen and the Taliban. They both have these Islamic fundamentalist Sharia law mentalities and were the very forces that we launched our whole war on terror on following the 9-11 attacks. They served our geopolitical aims in Afghanistan and crushed the popular government of the late 1970s, supported by the majority of Afghanistans, and with it the very aspirations for women's rights that we keep claiming, therefore without merit, we are trying to promote in Afghanistan. This history is so important because the dominant narrative is that we are sanctioning a terrible government, the Taliban, yet there is no mention anywhere in the news that we were so instrumental in their creation and now in their emergence as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. And of course, the result is that the 40 million people of Afghanistan are terrorized by the outcomes of our foreign policy initiatives over the last four decades in Afghanistan. Can you share a little bit, you alluded to it somewhat, two things, the actual corruption that goes on and has been going on pre-Taliban takeover, but then also the U.S. sanctions now affect almost a third of the world. Okay, when you talk about population and there's some almost 40 nations that we sanction and these sanctions, they don't hurt anyone except civilians. And they've often been used in order to make living so intolerable for a country that they want to turn to the U.S. or the Western solution for the problem. Yet behind the scenes and outside the realization, not just of these countries, but of the American public citizenry. The reality is that we have pulled the levers 
with our inordinate economic power that have largely created these very conditions. Yet, due to this ignorance, are successfully often blamed on the government we are trying to overthrow. In many countries, we don't allow a government the peace of mind to do what it wants to do. We're in the middle of it in civil society and these other things, and we're manipulating the internal politics to turn towards allowing the type of Western investment that has such great influence on our government policies, right? And so in shows that we've done over the past year, we've shown time and time again, where so often the majority population of these countries is worse off almost every instance if the governments that the United States is supporting come to power versus the more democratic influences that want to prioritize the majority population's welfare over that Western neoliberal free trade investment and profitability priority. I know this is a complicated question, but first of all, you alluded to the sanctioning. First, there's been a hard, hard sanctioning of Afghanistan since the August switchover there. But also, can you speak to the corruption over the last decade or two as well? Are you familiar with elements of that? Yeah, you know, the U.S. involvement is not only excluded to two decades of intervention, but the U.S. government has been involved in Afghanistan since four decades ago. When the Soviet invaded Afghanistan and the U.S. government started supporting and even given rise to some extremely conservative and terrorist groups, including Taliban. Mm -hmm. So as for the sanction, I would say that the Ordinary people of Afghanistan are paying and will continue to pay the price for such sanctions. Neither Taliban nor the neighboring countries will pay, nor warlords or the former Afghan governments who escaped the country with having more than 100 million themselves will pay the cost of such sanctions. The former president, is that who you're referring to? Ashraf Ghani. Ashraf Ghani. Right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Ashraf Ghani fled the country with $169 million, Mm -hmm. the dollar that was covered and paid by the U.S. taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So as for the corruption, you know, the U.S. war against terrorism has been fruitless since its inception. You know, in 2001, Mm -hmm. when the George Bush administration intended to attack Afghanistan, they consulted with Afghan experts, the people who spent their entire life in Afghanistan. They consulted the U.S. government that if you attack Afghanistan, at the end of the day, there will be a total big mess left behind. But the U.S. government never listened to them and kept refusing their consultation. So within these 20 years, I myself witnessed thousands of accounts about how deeply Afghan actors and international players, even inside the big uh, U.S. contractors, how deeply they were corrupt. I was, I hear the stories. When I was working for anti-corruption committee, we were handed the documents that how Afghan officials were corrupt, from Ministry of Interior to Ministry of Education to Ministry of Women's Affairs. Every single ministry and so-called independent commissions or committees or agencies were fully corrupt. So the extent of corruption is unimaginable. And as you may have heard that recently, the former president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, is announced to be the most 
corrupt person on the planet in 2021. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So you're on the ground working for some of these groups, and you have firsthand knowledge of the corruption was really the normalcy in each of these ministries. And these ministries was the very government that the United States had kept in power as a, as a vassal ally of sorts until Trump, outside of that government, went ahead and communicated and reached an agreement with the Taliban on the withdrawals. That's a really important, because here's a government that we were completely in bed with that is as corrupt as any government that has occurred during our lifetime. And as you indicated, Ghani was voted the most corrupt in the world, I guess, based on his $160 million or whatever you indicated he took. But there's an article also in The Intercept that just came out a couple of days ago. And it really does point out a lot of the things that you introduced your comments with, which had to do about the economic meltdown that's going on. In this article, they indicate that the crisis has left nearly 23 million. Okay, so that's well over half of uh, Afghanis in extreme hunger and at least one million children under the age of five that are now facing immediate threat of starvation. And I guess the freezing of these assets, let's just talk about that for a second too, because these people have no chance of getting any real accountable aid or anything from the government if all of the resources are being frozen. Do you have that specific number, like what is being frozen by the West and the U.S. as far as the assets that the Afghan government had before and after the departure of Aghani? Well, uh, some basic estimations say that it's 9 to 10 billion U.S. dollars mm-hmm. that is frozen by the U.S. government. Maybe I can give a little, not a background, but a, what is going on on the ground? How, if, if there's any change in Taliban's political behavior or their behavior with people. Wow. I can see based on uh, my personal accounts, I gave eight attempts after the fall of Kabul to make my way and go into Kabul airport before the huge explosion uh, happened and left 13 American soldiers uh, along with 200 Afghans dead and so many other casualties. Uh, Taliban stopped me on the streets. They beat me. They lashed me. They searched my mobile phone. They stole my mobile phone. They entered into the people's house at midnight and take uh, someone from the family and then they vanish. You know, one of the other challenges in terms of political structure is the second rise of Taliban's Ministry of Promotion of Virtue and uh, Prevention of Vice, which is located at the same place that the Ministry of Women Affairs was located. Mm-hmm. So that the Ministry of Women's Affairs evaporated and the ministry uh, was born. Uh, Taliban executed four kidnappers in uh, Haras, in a big city, a few days ago. I just had a lesson for kidnappers. But it's still the kidnapping and abduction is taking place everywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, it's, it's good to point out about this internal uh, conflict within Taliban. I believe that Taliban is divided into two groups, as I'm uh, hearing from uh, friends on Afghanistan. Uh, there are two groups. One, younger generations who sacrifice themselves and their lives on the battlefield for the sake of application of Sharia on the ground, who are extremely against 
any different interpretations of the Islams that they define, where women is not allowed to walk outside and work outside with any, without any guardian. Men has to follow the restricted uh, version of Islam. And from the other side, you have some older generation of Taliban. He used to run Taliban regime back in 1996 to 2001, who looks to be a little bit liberal and open to have some conversations with the West and international community. Maybe here it would be good to just again uh, touch upon the fact that the international community very quickly after 9-11 decided that the uh, the best way to fight against terrorism is to invade Afghanistan and then to Iraq. But they made it very quickly, and within one month, they oust Taliban entirely from Afghanistan. But during two decades of fight against terrorism, which went almost all fruitless and uh, led to the second rise of Taliban, now it's time for international community to make a coalition and then decide to sit with Taliban because there is a potential and some green light from, from Taliban to sit with the international community, talk with them, come up with a plan and a strategy and let these humanitarian assistance funds be pulled into Afghanistan and become accessible to the public and then find a way out to put some kind of end to the current political and economic crisis. That sounds rational and, and doable. I just don't have great faith that that's really what our interest is in the international community, the people that navigate that. It certainly is as good, honest American citizens. That sounds great. But I want to just remind folks that we are visiting with Asir Vita. He's been in uh, Afghanistan the last 18 years, and he's now in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I think the point that you made is really important that we, we've addressed on this show in some depth in the past. But the war on terror was never a war on terror. In Afghanistan, it was the Mujahideen that was created as a result of U.S. involvement and strengthened as a result of U.S. involvement and was actually used to create many casualties for the Russian uh, troops there. What's very clear to me is that when you go back and you look at Libya, the Libyan Islamic fighting group that emanated and was really the center of the uprisings that led to the NATO invasion was up there in Benghazi. That, that's a fundamentalist Sharia group as well. They were our allies there in Syria. All sorts of al-Qaeda and fundamentalist groups became the backbone of what was predominantly a foreign terrorist-led fight against Assad. Uh, this is very well documented. You know, Tulsi Gabbards and a lot of mainstream type of people, even Biden in a speech alluded to the fact that so many of these forces fighting Assad were foreign fighters that were intimately connected to terrorist groups. So it's never been a war on terror. It's created more terrorism. We spent a whole year bombing Syria from 2014 to 2015, did not put a dent in the al-Qaeda-led resistance. And then Russia jumps in in 2015, and within three or four months, they've decimated dozens of thousands of these terrorists. So if we don't wake up and really see, as Americans, what our foreign policy is in bed with, then you know it's just going to be chickens coming back home to roost type of thing. In the limited time that we had left, Basir, you have talked about a lot of really important issues. Can you speak a little bit to these quote-unquote aid groups? I've seen them work in other countries, 
and actually undermine more democratic types of tendencies in countries in this hemisphere, in the Western Hemisphere, for instance, where they've done a lot of work in Central and Latin America and such. And I'm speaking about the United States Agency for International Development, where they've kind of steered away the more nationalist groups and partnered with the more conservative groups that uh, wanted to maintain these types of investment climates that we alluded to earlier. But in your experience in the last few minutes here, you mentioned that you worked on the ground with the United States international institutions like the United States Agency for International Development, like the British Development Agency and the Australian Development Agency. Can you separate what the real people on the ground are doing, which I'm sure many of them are very, very good people, versus really policy-wise, what's really being promoted or allowed to be to continue? You talked about all this corruption that was going on in this Afghan government, but this is going on concurrently with these aid organizations being in the middle of it, mm. is it not? Well, um, to be honest, the projects and the uh, nationwide programs that were funded like $50 million, $100 million, they were basically designed outside Afghanistan without any consultation from inside Afghanistan or Afghan experts or the final beneficiaries. They were designed basically there. There were some, as an example, call for proposal or call for a grants. And at the end of the day, you could see that, well, projects were implemented, but the, the beneficiaries' mentality, mindset, are those who were supposed to get changed. At the end of the day, they were not changed. This is from one hand. From from other hand, there was no coordination between them. So the, one of the biggest challenges within these eight organizations was lack of coordination. They There was so much overlapping. They had for example, a, project, a development project designed to be implemented in southern provinces in 2020. But there was some other similar projects being implemented in the same area without any coordination. And at the end, you could see, well, I'm receiving, since the government was corrupt and there were so many other people corrupt underground, uh, I, I agree with you that there are some good people with very good hearts, but they were, when there is a deep culture of corruption, mm -hmm. you can just, you just take care of yourself and your own business. So Very when good. I receive some support from one uh, organi aid organization, why not from the other one? Right. So there was overlapping, and since it was basically designed outside Afghanistan, and there was overlap and lack of coordination, so ultimately, the, what was supposed to be achieved was not achieved to that extent. Very good, very good. Well, listen, we've had the great pleasure of visiting with Basir Vita. He is uh, 18 years in his homeland of Afghanistan and 18 years before that in Iran. Basir, I'm very interested to share that you're writing a book about the fall of Kabul, and you are probably going to get that completed in the f near future or such. If people want to follow your work, what would be the best way to follow your work in educating people about Afghanistan? Well, the manuscript that I'm still working on it is based on personal accounts, the challenges that I personally went through, the challenges that specific ethnic groups that I come from, Hazara, the way that the Taliban, this favoritism, and even the U.S. and Afghan government's favoritism 
to one ethnic group. You know, maybe it's good to just one last point before I talk about the book that I'm working on. One last point is that, um, unfortunately, after the fall of Kabul, there was a very uh, organized coordination between Afghan governments, the U.S. soldiers, and Taliban. Taliban were taking care of the security and safety of the U.S. while they were sore um, uh, enemies. So they can stay in touch with me uh, through following me on Facebook or uh, my um, Gmail account. And and how do you spell your name to follow you? B-A-S-I-R. B-I-T-A, Basir Bita. Okay, Basir, it has been a great, great pleasure and honor to have you on Bringing Light into Darkness, and we'll look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much, Shazam. Yeah, sure. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Check out the bozo. Oh, 